I think when we look back at Charles II, we think of him as a merry monarch with loads of mistresses, not taking life too seriously. But there were six weeks in his life when he was a young man in 1651, when he was really on the run for his life. And you're right, you know, we do tend to look at this as a sort of what used to be called a jolly jake. But it was much more than that. I mean, he really would have been definitely executed if caught. Hello and welcome to this week's pod. My name is Oliver Webb-Carter and I'm the editor and your host. This week's guest is Charles Spencer, the author of four books on the 17th century and his latest, which is The White Ship, all about the nautical tragedy that prompted the anarchy in 12th century England. But my chat today, as you heard at the top there, is the story of Charles II and his escape from Oliver Cromwell and his forces from the Battle of Worcester on the 3rd of September 1651. Charles went on the run for his life, which had been quite a turbulent one up until then. He was a boy when the Civil War started, as we know. His father was executed in 1649, and he lived in exile. Worcester was his last chance, and he lost. But, like a phoenix, he rose from the flames to return as king in 1660. So it's the period of his escape which has a what-if factor had he got the chop. Would we have seen a return of the Stuarts? Would the Cromwells have ruled forever and we'd have a King Oliver today? I wouldn't mind that for obvious reasons. Anyway, coming up, I have a chat with the great ancient historian Paul Cartledge on the Parthenon marbles. Gordon Corrigan returns with Robert Lyman to talk Britain's greatest military commander. And plenty more, including the CIA and MI6 working together. Tom Holland joins me. The Film Club chats the new Nolan film Oppenheimer. Plus plenty more, so please do subscribe and rate and review if you can. And do tell your friends. Until then, I'll hand you over to me talking with Charles Spencer on Charles II. Charles Spencer, welcome to the pod. It's a great pleasure to have you on. Thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure, Ollie. Thank you. And I, I wanted to get you on because I wanted to talk about a book that I read a number of years ago now. I think it's I think it's six years old. 2017, I think it came out in. Yes. Which is To Catch a King, yes. Charles II's Great Escape, which is, just looking over the book again, it's lots of fun reading it. It really is. It's, sort of, it's this sort of classic story that we probably all learnt as school children. And it's just sort of a romantic story, but it's got all these extraordinary implications to it, really, as well. Because it means a lot more. Is that why you wanted to write about Charles's escape? Yes. So what I've tended to do when I've when I've written sort of serious history books, if I can call it that, I mean they're narrative history, not academic, but they're 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 attempting to be straight and uh, factual, etc. Is to sometimes take the whole biography of a king and distill it into a moment. So I've done. Uh, the worst, the worst tragedy that happened to Henry I in the beginning of the 12th century, Charles I's beheading, uh, and then this was Charles II's defining moment in his own uh, estimation. This is him at his best. I think when we look back at Charles II, we think of him as a merry monarch with loads of mistresses, not taking life too seriously. But there were six weeks in his life when he was a young man uh, in 1651, when he was really on the run for his life. And you're right, you know, we do tend to look at this as a sort of what used to be called a jolly jake, but it was much more than that. I mean, he really would have been definitely executed if caught. He'd already been declared guilty of treason. So 
I wanted to bring to life the fact that, yes, we sort of know about this story, but there's quite a lot more to it. I was going to ask you if he had been caught, if you think he would have been executed. So there's no doubt in your mind that that would have happened because that would have notched up two monarchs on the old post of executed <laughs> Charles's as well. I mean, that is quite a big step to, to execute Charles II as well, isn't it? Yes, but that actually one does follow the other um, in, in terms of logic as well. Uh, when Charles II invaded with the Scottish army in, in, in the summer of 1651, the regicide, so the men actually involved in the judgment and execution of Charles I knew that if he succeeded, they would be dealt with in a, in a very thorough and unpleasant way and put to death, uh, as eventually happened, actually, to some of them. So they were very keen to get rid of him as well. And, and the fact is, he had led an, an enemy army into England. I mean, he was declared King of Scotland, um, and the Scots and the English had centuries of invading each other behind them and yeah he would definitely I have absolutely no doubt he'd have been put to death uh, the council of state who basically ran uh, England at this time had declared him guilty of treason and it would have been I think a very quick process he wouldn't have uh, there wouldn't have been uh, much of a trial um, probably shorter than his father's one even right which was a complete stitch up. Our listeners know all about the trial and execution of Charles um, yes so it would have been even more of a formality I think so. I, I think Charles I's trial was completely invalid in law. Um, and I do sympathise with their intention. They, um, the, the people who judged him saw Charles I as the stumbling block, block between all these years of terrible bloodshed and uh, further bloodshed. And, and sort of the idea was if they killed Charles I, they would end the civil war, which had been so incredibly costly to the country in terms of lives. Well, it didn't because we had the Battle of Worcester, which you've you've mentioned, the 3rd of September, which is a big date for those fans of Oliver Cromwell. Um, yeah, two of his greatest victories then, and his birthday, but also the Battle of Dunbar was on the 3rd of September. So, I, I mean, Worcester was an incredible battle. Um, it was uh, eventually an enormous victory for the uh, New Model Army. They outnumbered the Scots considerably by I think three to one in all but um, Charles II actually we, again we think of him as a fop uh, but he proved himself a very brave soldier a brave general that day rushing around trying to um, galvanize his troops to fight back uh, but by the end of the day you know he had started that day the 3rd of September 1651 as king of Scotland hoping to be king of England and he ended it by being the most wanted man in the country on the run so it's a hell of a turnaround in one day one day's action yeah, and he was only 20 at the time, and it just, you know, commanding a, an army at that age, I mean, I can't imagine, really. Well, it also, the Scots, I mean, to be, to be fair, it was a very poor Scottish army. I, I, I don't mean just in terms of quality. They just didn't have much, and they marched south into England with artillery. Uh, the cannons were, were, were made of leather. They hadn't even got metal. So they trundled south in increasing despair, I think, and were holed up in Worcester, which had always been a a royalist stronghold, really. And, um, and and the inevitable sort of happened, I think. Uh, Charles was surrounded. There were three serious armies from the new, new model army around him, and he really didn't have much of a hope of getting away. But actually, that is the point of the story. You know, I, when I look back on it, it is the most extraordinary escape story. 
Um, it's actually one that Steve Coogan and his production company are making into a six-parter at the moment. And, and I think what appealed to Steve, if I can call him by his first name, having had a few meetings with him, um, is that uh, not, not the comic potential, because there, there isn't a lot, uh, but the idea that this man, who, a young man who was brought up in the most uh, spoiled of circumstances, although, you know, a few years in exile before this, um, was on the run being hidden, helped and um, defended by ordinary people who were putting their lives on the line for him. And during those six weeks, he learned an enormous amount about not only himself, but about the people who he would one day come back to rule. And you mentioned Coogan's interested. Well, no, he's going ahead now. So, he, yeah, he's been doing various other projects, but now pushing ahead with it. So, yeah, it, and, 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 you know, we'll see who's directing it, but it looks like somebody quite big. And, and I think the idea is to do six episodes, one on each week of Charles on the Run. And actually, Charles, is, his escape does fall into different phases. You know, he starts off being protected by a yeoman farming family called the, well, actually a peasant farming family, really, called the Pendrels up in the northwest of England. And then he's handed on to what I would consider to be a sort of Roman Catholic underground who have, they have very good things for hiding him in because they're, they're used to hiding their priests. And so uh, Charles II is saved by various priest holes as well as loyal Catholics, hiding places, very well hidden places in, in large Catholic homes. And then eventually into a more um, mainstream royalist group who look after him. And I, I, I love the story because it is almost impossible that Charles II can get away. There are, there are thousands of people looking for him with a large price on his head. He's very distinctive. He's sort of six foot two when people weren't. And he's quite dark skinned because of his mother's Franco-Italian blood. And somehow through a series of uh, events that, you know, there's a bit of luck, there's a bit of daring do, there's a bit of everything, um, he manages eventually to get away. And it's an extraordinary escape tale that actually at the time, um, the parliamentarians tried to close down the tale because their, their idea at this time, they'd won three civil wars, was that God must be, uh, on their side, uh, and they found it very hard to square that very strong belief with the uh, the actual truth that Charles II, their greatest potential enemy, had got away from them. And it's interesting to say that because the population, I mean, the Civil War had been a horrific conflict with, I mean, the numbers of death is extraordinary, really. I think it varies on percentages of population, but it's a huge percentage and yes, it was 5% of English, 6% or so of Scots, but something extraordinarily high um, percentage of Irish were either killed or permanently displaced. And actually, that, that, that is, it remains the bloodiest war that the, um, the British have ever suffered in terms of percentage of loss of life, including the First World War. It was worse than that. So people were very keen to put an end to that bloodshed. Um, it, was, uh, it was really something... Horrific. I mean, this is a time, of course, in Europe where blood was flowing. You know, you had a Thirty Years' War, but 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 in England, England had always been a quite sort of quiet backwater. We hadn't really had much uh, to worry about since the Wars of the Roses at home, which was you know in, in the mid fifteenth century. And then, therefore, the the population was sort of roughly split down the middle as to whether they were they wanted Charles wanted Charles dead or not, really, during his escape. Over the country as a whole, that's true. It was regionally uh, tipped in various ways. Very early on, after Worcester, 
Charles is keen to get to Wales because the Welsh had been uh, particularly keen on the royalist cause, but he couldn't get across the uh, the river because the parliamentary army, the new model army, was an incredibly efficient unit, and they knew they knew where people were going to be running to. They weren't at, at the beginning. They weren't specifically looking for Charles. There was a general supposition that he would probably be in the huge pile of royalist dead uh, lying in and around Worcester. And that was part of the luck for Charles. While, while there were these posters being put up to, to look for this uh, fugitive royal, at the same time, the, there was a sort of belief that maybe he was dead anyway. So, uh, and as, as the six weeks dragged on, um, yes, there were still units looking for him. Um, and particularly um, ambitious at this time were the troops of Thomas Harrison, who was a uh, the son of a butcher from Nottinghamshire, who who was a, a, a fervent anti-royalist. He, he had actually escorted Charles I from his for his final major journey from the south coast of England to London, where he was going to be put on trial. And he was, uh, you know, an absolute. Um, well, he was lethal for the royalists. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Jesse Child's excellent book on the siege of Loyalty House and. Uh, Harrison's one of the main figures there, shooting uh, prisoners of war in cold blood as they surrendered. So he he was put in charge of hunting Charles II down, and he was a particularly vicious foe. But he not even he, with his uh, whipped up frenzy of religious belief, quite a bizarre religious belief. I mean, there, there were various sects at this time, but the the fifth monarchists who believed that there had been four empires of man, you know, the Babylonian, the Greek, the Roman, whatever, uh, they were thinking that the real, the real empire was going to be the second coming of the Lord, and they believed that was very imminent. So the, the, these people weren't, we have to remember, it wasn't just a sort of uh, two sides in a, in a war. There was a, a religious as well as a political and uh, economic aspect to the hostilities as well. And Charles himself, you mentioned, you know, we know him as the Merry Monarch, but he had, I mean, formative years he was going through the civil war. I think it was something like 12 or 11 or 12 when, when the civil war started and he's well, 20 at the battle of Worcester. How did that affect him? Not quite getting to his father's death, but how did the civil war, do we know how the civil war affected him? Yes. Well, he and his younger brother, James, who, who would become James II, they were both very nearby eyewitnesses to the Battle of Edge Hill. They were on the, on the, on the edge of that, watching that, the, the first major engagement of the Civil War. And um, after Naseby in, in the summer of 1645, um, effectively, Charles I decided that with things going so poorly for his cause that he ought to separate from his son in case they were both killed or captured at the same time. So Charles II, as a young man, in his mid-teens, was effectively made the commander of the Royalist forces in southwest England. But things didn't go well for the Royalists. They'd, they'd, thought they'd, they'd definitely had it after Naseby when the main royal army was defeated uh, decisively. And eventually he's pushed out. He, 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 he seeks shelter in the Isles of Scilly, uh, which are very exposed, difficult to, uh, to keep them. And he escaped uh, before a parliamentary fleet could capture him there. And he went to the Channel Islands and then eventually ended up in France, where his mother was in exile. She was a, a, a French princess of the blood. And, and so he, he lived for uh, his later teen years in the, in the French court as this rather sort of curious figure. Um, I, I, the French didn't really want to support him. 
Uh, and so he was waiting for something to change and he was looking for allies. And he was hoping to, uh, I think, form an alliance with the Irish, but they were knocked out effectively by Oliver Cromwell. And eventually the Calvinist Scots uh, said that they would take him as a king. Um, the, the, the Scots had been furious with uh, Parliament because they'd handed over Charles I for a fee, um, uh, but, but with, with the absolute guarantee that no harm would come to him. So when Charles I was executed in January 1649, um, the Scots uh, remained very disgruntled and they reluctantly supported Charles II because he did not uh, fit in with the Calvinist view of how a young man could be. He was already pretty uh, wild living, um, but he forged an alliance that worked for both of them uh, until it all came to a sticky end at the Battle of Worcester. And uh, then, then he was on the run for his life, as we as we say. Well, when he when he went back to France, he, he becomes a little bit of a refugee, doesn't he? Because uh, France makes an alliance with Cromwell's England. Yes, after Worcester. I mean, Charles has a really incredibly difficult time between 1651, when he finally manages to escape, and 1660, when out of the blue, he comes back for the restoration. We, we forget that. There was literally no hint at the beginning of 1660 that uh, England would revert to the Stuarts as its royal family. But essentially, you have Charles II as he will become, living the life of a, a sort of uh, noble vagrant at some times. You know, he, he's shunted out of France because exactly as you say, Cromwell insists that as a condition of the alliance between in his England and France, that they cannot harbor Charles. And he's shunted around Europe. He's in uh, inns in what is now Germany, where he can't afford his bills. There are lots of uh, royalists tagging along, all impecunious and hoping for a better time. But I think as the 1650s go on, everyone loses heart and thinks that there is no way back. And it, it takes a, a sort of breakdown of order across lots of uh, different districts of England with you know, mutinies and, and, and civil unrest um, for people to contemplate reverting to default and going back to a monarchy. Well, after all that, you can rather forgive him his, his rather luxurious lifestyle when he returns to England, becomes the Merry, the merry Monarch. Well, I think so. I, I view Charles II, really, when he comes back in 1660, rather like a Euro lottery winner. Um, he, he's got this incredible opportunity to live a very pampered life. Uh, I mean, it wasn't all easy. Politically, he was a controversial figure. He was suspected of favouring Louis XIV's France against the Dutch when the English essentially supported the Dutch against the French. So he, he was viewed with some suspicion by uh, people in the political world. The public, such as, if we can call them that, because uh, anyway, the people of England, I think, had a sort of rather affectionate view of this, you know, sort of loose living man who they, they were slightly frustrated by. I think Charles II might have been more intelligent than we give him credit for. And he, he, he was caught, really. He didn't have enough money to do many dramatic things overseas, uh, have, a, have, a, have a, uh, an extravagant foreign policy. Yes, he, and he, he had to support uh, three wars against the Dutch, mainly on sea. Um, but essentially, he was cash-strapped. What money he did have, he wasted 
on mistresses, you know, buying lots of jewelry. When, when the Dutch sailed up the Medway in 1667, uh, one of the main criticisms was uh, that the Navy had been underfunded because Charles was wasting it buying jewelry for his then favorite mistress, uh, Barbara Castlemaine. And, but I think Charles, maybe I'm being too kind, but I think he looked at his father had been incredibly political, busy and controversial and had gone to the block. And then if we look at what would happen to his brother, James, Duke of York at this stage, became James II, who was a devout Roman Catholic. Charles was a very secret Roman Catholic until his deathbed. I, I, I think Charles II may have steered the right course by being sort of quietly useless, really, rather than overly busy with the, the affairs of monarchy. Right, so you, you don't particularly... I mean, you've called him useless there. You don't particularly rate him as a, a, a particular... Well, I think I, I think it was quite... It could have been a very clever ruse. You know, why upset everyone? Why not just have a good life? He was, you know, he did a lot of good too. He he, he was a, 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 a an intellectual, actually, and, and very interested... Great scientist, wasn't he? Yes, very interested in science. And, and um, he's intrigued by clocks. He had a dozen clocks in his bedroom because he loved the mechanism and probably the just the sheer mechanics of it. And he was uh, interested in designing ships, etc. He was uh, uh, really the, 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 the man who was behind the Royal Society and uh, which with its great scientific endeavors. And yeah, he, he wasn't a stupid man, but he was indolent and he was a womanizer. And I think the womanizing took up an enormous amount of his time and energy. Well, in the form of his eldest illegitimate son, it was a complete disaster, wasn't it? The Duke of Monmouth. Yes. So the Duke of Monmouth was probably his favourite child, I think. Uh, he was his first child, um, born of the um, mistress, his first serious uh, love, probably the love of his life, if, if we believe in that sort of thing, called um, Lucy Walter. Uh, and, yeah, James, he was named James by Charles II, after his uh, after his grandfather, and Monmouth would go on to be a very uh, able British general uh, until it really mattered, which was in in his own cause when he arrived in 1685 and thought that he could turn the Protestant hostility towards his uncle James II against him and become king himself. Uh, but it was premature. You know, imagine if he had waited three years when. James II had alienated uh, the Protestant establishment uh, and, and, of course, the Church of England as a whole. Uh, he may have had an easy breeze in and, and, and scooped up the prize, although, he, you know, bottom line is he was still illegitimate, which was a, a major stumbling block. Did Charles get on with his brother James? Because James is quite a difficult character, isn't he? Yes, Charles and James were were close. I, 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 James II gets a really bad rap, and, and, and he, he was very unwise to take on what I have called the Protestant establishment, which I, I obviously I'm putting things into our terms rather than what he Yes, yes. Knowledge. But the, I, I, I think James II was a very brave general and admiral, you know, he was the Lord High Admiral uh, later on. He fought very well in Europe when in exile. He was an able uh, military man. He was not a diplomat. The Stuarts rarely were, to be honest. I mean, they, they really fell down on that side of things, generation after generation. Um, but they were close. And it's when Charles II is lying on his deathbed in early 1685, 
uh, it's to James that he confesses that he, he, Charles II, is a Catholic and he would like to die a Catholic. And James ushers that through. And another thing, so we've talked about mistresses. Um, on his deathbed, which was quite a long time he was on it, on it uh, Charles II famously asked his brother to see that Nell Gwynne wouldn't starve. And, you know, James honoured that uh, after his brother's death. He didn't need to. He could easily have ignored um, the, the, the dying wishes of, a, of his brother for one of his lovers. Uh, but he did pay her off. She died quite soon afterwards. But he did give her a, a generous pension and paid off her debts, etc. And I think that's the sort of thing you do as a loving brother, probably. Um, and, yeah, I think he, he, he put up with a lot with James. James is a very controversial, sort of lightning rod of discontent against um, non-Protestant mainstream religion and, and any resentment against the crown as a whole. He was not a particularly popular figure. He married rather unwisely first time round, well, both times, actually. First of all, a, a courtier's, a senior courtier's daughter, Anne Hyde, and, and, and then uh, an Italian Roman Catholic princess. Uh, James was stubborn, tricky, etc., but he was a loyal brother. And reading, uh, reading the last chapter of your book, which is Charles's death, it's actually, you feel awful for him. The treatment of illness in those days, I mean, you just don't want to get ill in the uh, <laughs> century. Well, you're right. You don't want to get ill and you don't want to be the king and get ill because everyone has a, has a stake in trying to keep you alive, but no knowledge, you know. So we don't really know what, what happened to Charles, but it could have been a combination of things. It's probably something to do with his kidneys. But anyway, he got very ill in, in February 1685 and a dozen royal physicians sort of um and ah and, and, and take wild guesses at what's wrong with him. And they, you know, they shave his hair and, and, and cup him with white hot glass. They, they bleed him. They give him a, a poultice made of pigeon droppings. They give him the most disgusting medicines, ground up bone, etc., and none of it is going to help. And probably it, it just added to his pain as he exited this world. But uh, there's rather, it's, it's very poignant to me. There's, there's this, he is a charming man. Whether you approve of him politically or, or personally or morally, he was very nice. And I, after a few days of taking all this beating from his physicians, he wakes up in the morning and apologizes to everyone around him for still being alive. Now, that's a wonderfully... English gentleman thing to do. <laughs> yes, I love that actually. Um, <laughs> so I think this was this your fourth book on the 17th century? Yes, four in a row I did. I started with the Battle of Blenheim for its tercentenary uh, in 2004. And then I did Prince Rupert uh, for the Rhine, who was Charles II's cousin. And then I did the Killers of the King on the regicides. And, and then this was the fourth one, yes. Because oh, it struck me as I was reading it, because the 17th century is all the rage in the last few years, isn't it? Yeah, it wasn't when I started. And I'm really, not, not that I am anyway responsible, but when I, when I first, I, I'd written a couple of books, much easier books, really, on, on my house and my family. And, and then, then I wanted to do something serious. And I spotted the Battle of Blenheim's tercentenary was coming up. And that, you know, I'm, 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 I'm late 50s. So I was brought up in a, an era where we learnt a lot more, a lot broader a range of subjects at school, compulsorily. And um, I thought it was a pity that that was forgotten, so I brought that back. I, well, I tried to. But then the, the Civil War, when I 
when I wrote Blenheim, the, the publishers said, look, before they'd read it, they said, look, it sounds, it sounds a bit challenging. <laughs> Could you do something more mainstream? And they asked me to do anything on the Tudors or the English Civil War. And, you know, even back in 2003, when I got the commission, I thought the Tudors were overdone. Well, my goodness, um, it's, still, it's still a well-harrowed field, isn't it? And, um, and I thought the Stuarts have actually, to me, have always been more interesting uh, than the Tudors. And the English Civil War has always been, to me, the most important episode in our family, in our, our nation's history, I think. And I, I just I gravitated that way. And, and, and there's been no master plan to my writing career, Ollie. I would love to say there has. But literally, I, I, I decided to do something on Prince Rupert of the Rhine because I thought I could tell the tale of the Civil War and the Restoration through one man's life. And yes, he was involved in some appalling you know, dealings overseas, but he was also an incredibly able man in many ways. And, yeah, he always and comes I, across, sorry to interrupt you, he always comes off yeah. really badly in, in the film Cromwell. He's played by the great Timothy Dalton, but he's sort of this <laughs> fop who's con- consistently losing. But he was, a, a, as you say, such an able man. He was an all-rounder. I mean, he was, a, yes, he was a, a, a hot-headed cavalry leader, I found when I read about him that he wasn't at all Timothy Dalton in uh, Oliver Cromwell. He was a very dour German professional army officer. And he, he, he had, as a very young man in his early 20s, he was effectively given command of the Royalist Cavalry and then the Royalist Army uh, at Naseby. And yes, after from Marston Moor onward, he lost a, a lot of battles. But he had no chance, really. I mean, by that stage, the Scots had entered the war on Parliament's side. And the new model army was getting trained up. He had no time at all to train his men. They were just going from one crisis to another. I think the, 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 the intriguing part about him is his life after the Civil War. He, he, he became the last man standing, really, with a sort of rogue fleet uh, attacking parliamentary shipping overseas, basically a pirate. But then he comes back as a rather grizzled old warrior in the Restoration as the third most important man in the country um, after the death of the Duke of Gloucester. It really is Charles II, James II, and then him. A very active member of the Royal Society, an inventor, an artist. Uh, he helps open up Canada. He's an intriguing man. And, and you know, if, if he had had legitimate children, he had an uh, illegitimate son and illegitimate daughter, they would have become the kings or queens of England because he was the uncle of George I and and, and it would have been a different story. So yeah, I like the forgotten people, semi-forgotten people and semi-forgotten moments in history and trying to bring them back to life. Well, it's it's such a, as you say, such a rich um, rich century. So thank you very much for joining. Now, before I go, I wanted to mention to listeners that you you also you you become involved in a in a threesome podcast, the Rabbit Hole Detectors, with Richard Coles and Kat Jarman. Yes, that's history. I mean, it's it's put under the genre of history. In fact, it's just three friends chatting is how I view it. And then you know, each each episode we give each other a a theme to develop, a topic to look at, uh, and it could be anything. I mean, I've been given the Grand Tour and crack military regiments. And hangover the, cures? Didn't you do hangover cures? Hangover cures. I put in 40 years of research uh, for that one. <laughs> and uh, I've yet to find one that works. What I won't be doing, what, what, one of the things that came up during my research for the rabbit hole detectors on that one was the Mongolian Mary, which is sheep's eyes and tomato juice. 
And I think a lot of these so-called cures for hangovers are really there just to put you off getting drunk in the first place. So, but no, it's been great fun. And it, I think for me, it's always been, whether writing or now podcasting, it's about trying to get people interested in history because I'm not an academic. You know, I got a 2-1 degree at Oxford, but it's a very long time ago. But there are a lot more intelligent academic writers than me about history. But I like to tell the story and hopefully... Um, light up people's interest in, in in things that I think are wrongly half forgotten. And what's extraordinary to me is there is a limitless supply of stories, as I guess you're finding out. In Well, I think that's true, you know, particularly of my generation. So I've still got the energy to write, thankfully. Um, but I've, I've, I've got that childhood knowledge of nuggets. My last book was on the white ship, Thinking of the White Ship, which you kindly interviewed me about. And, and I wrote that because I, I realised that while I grew up knowing that story, very few people under 50 did. And, and yet it's a seminal moment. It's, it's the beginning of the end for the Norman dynasty, all because of one shipwreck. And we get the Plantagenets as a result. And I love those moments in history which change everything forever. That's what it's about. Wonderful way to end it, Charles. Thanks so much for your time. A great pleasure, Ollie. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. Please do subscribe and tell your friends. As you heard at the start, plenty more great subjects and guests to come. In the meantime, thank you and good night.